Hey everybody, this is Ben Bowman. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. I mean, that's one thing I'll say about a lot of the leaders, including Governor Brown and Peter Courtney and myself, who are now moved on from Oregon, is when you've had that experience of serving the minority, I think you treat the minority a little differently. You kind of feel like maybe you had things to add then and maybe they have things to add now. That's a pretty big difference. I mean, it went from being a pretty purple state to being more solidly blue, and that's a big change. Most of the decisions that reach your desk, if they were easy to answer, they would have been answered. All right, folks, today we have a very fun episode. This is an episode we've been sitting on for a few weeks because Reagan and I were very excited to bring it to you. And we think now is a great time. This week's episode is with Nick Blosser. Nick Blosser has held some very important roles at both the state and federal level. He's probably most notable in Oregon for serving as Governor Kate Brown's chief of staff, including during some of the most challenging moments of Governor Brown's time in office, including the COVID-19 crisis, the wildfires, and that really, really challenging year of 2020. After that, he held a very cool job at the highest levels of the federal government. He worked in the Joe Biden administration as the deputy cabinet secretary and special assistant to President Biden. He's now back in Oregon. He works at PGE as vice president for public policy, communications, and public affairs. So we talk about all that. We cover all that ground. We start in the early days with Nick. His mom actually has played a a somewhat prominent role in Oregon politics, more prominently in the Oregon business world, which is where Nick started. He started his career in the business space and ultimately the business advocacy space before he made the transition to government. And then, of course, because Reagan and I are the co-hosts, we spent a lot of time asking about the older days of Oregon politics, what it was like in the 90s and the 2000s when the political dynamics of the state were far different. There's some, some names that you'll probably remember that we chat about in this episode. So hopefully you enjoy this episode. We really enjoyed recording it. And thanks again for listening to the Oregon Bridge, and we'll see you back here next week. Orang Long PC has always recognized that achieving our clients' goals sometimes requires a change in the law. And in other situations, clients need help stopping or changing proposed amendments to the law that put their interests at risk. For decades, we have played a role in shaping Oregon law on many subjects, from narrow regulations to major policy changes implicating billions of dollars. Our lawyers work with clients to draft legislation, prepare legal opinions and testimony to share with legislators, coordinate with professional lobbyists, and work directly with policymakers. To learn more about Harang Long's policy and politics practice, go to harang.com. That's H-A-R-R-A-N-G.com. All right. Nick Blosser, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. So Nick, we're going to go backwards in Oregon history a little bit to start with. So I was reading, first of all, there's not a lot like a comprehensive bio of Nick Blosser on the internet. So we had to cobble together some different sources. But one of the sources says you worked in the Oregon legislature in the 1990s. Was that your first foray into the Oregon political world? Yeah, I think the the first foray was my mom ran for the legislature in 1986. And in 1988, when I was 15 and 17, and she lost both races. She was sort of a, what she referred to herself as a business Democrat in Yamhill County. 
So that was that was before vote by mail, very difficult races. She lost. Um, between that time, 1987, 88, I actually was a page in the US Congress oh, no for Jim Wright for a year. If you remember that name, he was before Speaker Foley. And I worked in his office in the US Capitol. And I'm, that was the first and only Democratic convention I've been to is the 1988 convention where Dukakis was anointed in Atlanta. But that's way too far back in history. My first, I ran a campaign for representative for an, an individual, Chris Beck, who oh, won yeah. a competitive primary in Portland and became a, a legislator in the 97th session. That was my first and only session actually working in the legislature. And then I ran Future PAC, which is the House Democratic Campaign Committee in 1998. We lost three seats and oh, no. I pretty much decided to get out of politics for 18 years. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so funny things. Who here. who was running the the Republicans pack? Do you remember? I'm sorry, I don't remember. I'd have to go back and look. Piercy was the Democratic. Oh leader. yeah, Mayor Piercy. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't remember who the Republican leader was. The three seats we lost, honestly, Brian Johnston died. Well, actually, no, he. Sorry, he that was he resigned. He did not want to run for re-election, and. Bob Jensen switched parties. Switched parties. Yeah, that's right. That was I was just talking about Brian Johnston a couple nights ago because we were talking about how back in the day it used to be that it, w it was not super uncommon for a legislator to get moved to a state agency job, like yeah. leading a state agency. Brian Johnston was the interim DHS head, I believe, before DHS and OHA had split. I think it was that, was that, was it Ted Kulingoski at the time? Could be. I really sure. liked Brian. He was he was great. Very conservative Democrats, though, did not did not like the caucus at that point. Oh, wh why is that? I think, you know, sort of the same problem the Republicans have now. At that point, a couple, Brian Johnston, Bob Jensen, they just did not feel like the caucus leadership under Kitty Piercy was aligned with their where they wanted to be. Oh, that's super interesting. What I was thinking as you were talking was how like, all the names in Oregon politics kind of like stay the same over a period of decades. So like Kitty Piercy <laughs> was majority leader. She then was, I knew her as mayor of Eugene when I was yeah. in college. Your mom, I didn't realize she ran in the eighties because my memory of her was in 2010. I was working on the Kitsaber campaign yep. and everyone was like, oh my gosh, we're actually like, we have a chance at Yamhill County. Worst year ever for Democrats in like my political lifetime. And I think still the closest we've gotten to flipping the seat, which everyone was like, if it was 2012 or 2008, like yeah. that's a blue seat. But your poor, your poor mom, three strikes. And she, she just lost couldn't... twice and said she felt, you know, just had that. A lot of people do. I think a lot of people think about running for office. She did. And she wanted to give it one more shot and didn't make it, unfortunately. So the other background question is a lot of people also know that your wife is former Multnomah County Chair Deb Kafori. Yeah. Deb Kafori was also a legislator back around this same time, I think. So how did you two meet and get connected? Her first session, so in the 98 election, when I lost a bunch of seats, she won election. She, <laughs> and then she, and, and partly because she won, I decided, like I said, get out of politics. I started a business with some friends and stayed away. And she, within, I think, three terms, became Democratic leader, youngest Democratic leader still. Mm -hmm. And we had met at, there was an organization in Portland called XPAC, 
mm-hmm. that we had met at. And this basically was just an organization that every month hung out at a bar and invited political leaders from the state of, of all parties. Like we had Bill Sizemore there once just to talk <laughs> about politics. And uh, I think uh, Senator Knope came once and it was, you know, it was just, it was a good way to kind of meet people and learn about what was going on. Was X-Pac, was that, was that Blumenauer? No, that was after Blumen. That was like the Chris Beck and- it was Eric Sten. Eric Sten. David Bragdon a little bit, Chris Beck, Deborah, Sam Chase, a few other folks. Again, names that I just saw Sam Chase, I think just got hired as the yeah. city of Portland government affairs person, a former Metro counselor. Chris Beck applied to be the state rep when who resigned or the state's. Uh... I can't remember. Ryan Deckard also. I mean, this is what happened. A, a bunch of the leaders all got elected. And so the group <laughs> kind of dissolved because there was no one to run the, these events. They, <laughs> they were, were actually off. in power now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe before we transition to the governor's office stuff, I'm kind of like, I I like talking about this stuff. Biggest changes, in your opinion, when you think about, this would have been like 1990s, right? This era. Late 90s. Well, maybe maybe I'll tell you a little. I mean, the Democrats were in the minority in in the House and the Senate. When I was that session, there were 10 Democratic senators to 20 Republicans. I mean, it was very, it was different. And so I think, I mean, that's one thing I'll say about a lot of the, leaders, including Governor Brown and and Peter Courtney and myself, who are now moved on from Oregon, is you when you've had that experience of serving the minority, I think you treat the minority a little differently in terms because mm. you kind of feel like maybe you had things to add then and maybe they have things to add now. So that's a pretty big difference. I mean, it went from being a pretty purple state to being more solidly blue. And that's a big change. In terms of like political culture of the state like do you feel like Oregon has shifted a lot in that time like or do you subscribe to the like no Oregon's actually purple like how do you think of our political culture I think it's between I don't think it's deep blue but I don't think it's I don't really think it's purple anymore either I think I think it's pretty democratic yeah and that doesn't mean there aren't strong industries like the timber industry and strong folks in rural Oregon that don't tend to be democratic, that don't have influence. But I just think that influence has to be managed differently. The short version of the story is 2006 was the last cycle that Republicans held the House. And it was like by one seat, maybe, maybe two seats. Right. And 2008, you have the Clinton-Obama primary. Mm-hmm. And they're slugging it out all the way through the calendar, through the Oregon part of the calendar, which is usually not. It doesn't happen. Trump right. had the nomination locked up by the time he got to Oregon. And so there's a lot. You can watch the numbers of the number of non-affiliated and other voters that change Democrat to vote in that primary because it's competitive. And after that, the competitiveness in the statewide elections, a lot of the metro seats and stuff like that. I mean, there was other things happening, Tea Party and all that stuff. And I just think not all of that was super well received in Oregon. And so then that's kind of when the trajectory just changes. You had that quick flip back in 2010. And then there's been, you know, limited gains by Republican since, right? This last cycle was the last one where we've gained seats twice in a row in both chambers, uh, I think, or at least in the House. And then we gained one in the Senate, right? And so it's like, Post 2012, you have you don't really see Republicans have like a real strong resurgence of any kind, right? We kind of got more permanently, like you said, in that like light blue territory where it's like still possible for Republicans, but it's not flipped over yet hmm. since then. That's right. Especially statewide. It's just the, the math is very mm-hmm. difficult for Republicans. 
so Nick, you you did the politics thing. You go to Future Pack. It doesn't go <laughs> as well as you'd hoped it would go. You're like, I'm done. This is the Chinook book period. Where you're... yeah. So I I got out of politics. Deborah got elected. We started have we had started we had three kids during this period of time. I started a business. It morphed into a, a media company, including which published we published a, an energy news service. We published an early sustainable business magazine. And then we launched the city guides called Chinook Book. But I think one of the things that I really focused on from a volunteer perspective was one of the things I was most frustrated on in the legislative session was how the business community presented itself. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up in a small business, Sokol Blosser Winery. I felt like I, I, I felt then, I feel now I'm a business person. I did a six year mm-hmm. tour in government, but I've worked in business most of my career. And and this was back to the statewide business association at the time was called associated Oregon industries. Mm-hmm. And they were just so conservative and reactionary that after I got out of electoral politics, started a business, I started talking to other business people. I'm like, is this, how do you feel like your voice is represented in the legislature? I mean, are you against everything environmental? Are you against, you know, every new tax of any kind to, to fund education, things like that. And so that led one of the biggest, efforts that I was really uh, one of the leaders on was the founding of the Oregon Business Association. Right. With a lot of big, a lot of bigger businesses turned out they felt the same way. And so for 20 years, there was a, there were two statewide business associations. Now they're merged back into, into one, but. Was it really quick clarifying question on that when that was happening, was it about like my, was it, how much of it was my voice isn't being represented by this existing business association versus like, this existing business association would be really impactful if Republicans were in charge, but the politics are shifting and we actually need an entry point to have our voices at the table. Was any of that part of it or was it really just like? It wasn't really that. Honestly, it, it, this is going to be really like there were there were a lot of small and medium sized businesses, including a lot of the iconic, you know, Powell's and Hannah Anderson and uh-huh. Rejuvenation that just were a little more progressive and didn't agree with the general policies. At yeah. the same time, and this is interesting, AOI was anti-business if you were an insurance company or a utility, because <laughs> they had their own insurance, workers' comp insurance product through a state agency, SAFE. And they were trying to create their own utility to aggregate and sell power. This was during deregulation. So a bunch of businesses were like, Act- what the hell is our business association doing? They're not representing us. So that's where you had this merger of small and big businesses creating this new association. And so, and Reagan, you're going to ask the chief of staff thing, but were you the first leader of the organization or when did you take the reins? I was the person that was sort of putting it together and ran the process to hire Lynn Lundquist as the first. Oh, no kidding. (laughs) So we're like, we're going to get you, we're going to hire a Republican to be the head of this. And he was great. I really enjoyed Lynn and our conversations. We didn't agree on everything at all, but that was okay. And then I was chair later on, and I was active from a volunteer capacity, but in board service, but never, never as a job. Okay, so see, this is this this plays right into everything we're going to ask later because it seems like Nick is the king of building something and helping transition things. So that's going to come up (laughs) again here. (laughs) So your two, I would say that actually that is a pretty significant impact, quite honestly, because the impact that you OBA made. And ultimately merging with AOI, creating OBI, which, which is a pretty large organization. 
Yep. And it still has those elements of both. Like you can kind of see that like they've yep. got former Republicans and they've hired former Democrats and they're working together on the kind of business agenda, right? But I would say definitely your largest impact or the role you're most well known for is chief of staff of the governor. So I have never served as chief of staff for the governor. So the only thing I know about being chief of staff is what I've seen in the West Wing with Leo McGarry. <laughs> How similar is your job to something like that job as chief of staff for Governor Brown? And it could be different for other chiefs of staff. I don't know. But but what was it like for you? Yeah. You know, I had known most of the previous chiefs of staff to me. I knew Curtis Robinhole. I knew Bill Wyatt. So I thought I knew what the job was. And it is really hard to describe until you're there how mm. the velocity of issues and how much is going on and just the mag, the breadth of state government. You know, you think about the general fund and what it funds, but what you often don't include in that is, you know, the governor appoints the entire board of TriMet, a whole nother multi-billion dollar operation. <laughs> governor appoints the board of OHSU. Governor appoints the board of SAFE. I mean, there's a lot, there's very large the governor appoints the, the PUC, which oversees all the utilities. So there's just a very, very large impact that are significant to huge, to major industries that you don't fully appreciate, I think, until you are there and have the full picture. And it was very much like that, the, that I guess, I, to answer your question, in the sense of nonstop, things happening all the time. And, you know, I know as, as Ron Klain, President Biden's chief of staff says, most of the decisions that reach your desks, if, if they were easy to answer, they would have been answered. Right. <laughs> sort of like 5149 type questions, most of them. So I remember for the first month I would go home and collapse and really? you just your body okay. just in your mind just has to adjust to the pace and you have to take care of yourself personally. Otherwise, you won't make it. <laughs> How do you decide which questions get answered by the chief of staff and you're giving direction to agency leaders or partner groups who are coming in or whatever versus like what questions you actually have to take to Governor Brown for her to make a call? Like what is the threshold for those decisions? That's probably the most important thing you have to learn as quickly as possible as a chief of staff is that answer to that question. What do you need to run by the governor? Because you can't run every single decision by her. Yeah. But so I made a pretty concerted effort the first few months to run more by her than I thought maybe I needed to, but I needed to learn what, you know, ultimately it's what she's okay with. Mm. And then when you learn, when she's made a series of decisions, then you know, then you know what she would feel in if the same question comes up again, right? So it's very individual about, I think, in a particular governor, what they are most kind of caring about from a policy or, and then what they're okay to just delegate to agency leaders. So there's not a blanket kind of answer to that. Mm -hmm. But I do think, I'll just say, I think one of the reasons I was, if I had any success there, I guess I would say, I, it was interesting coming from a small business into the governor's chief of staff role, you think, how is that good training? It turns out it's pretty good training. I ran a company of about 40 people. The governor's office is actually about 50 people. And managing that office is not generally something that they appreciate when you hire someone for that role, you want to hire a political genius. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It turns out actually managing the office, making sure everyone knows what their job is, that their communication is good, that they elevate things that are needed is actually a very important part of the job. So you said there's about 50 people in the governor's office. Obviously, the top of the org chart is the one who's elected. The next step, we don't have a lieutenant governor. We have a secretary of state who's elected independently. So the secretary of state's office is not really involved in the governor's office. Right. So it's, it's the chief of staff. What is the structure yeah. below that? 
So we had two deputy chiefs of staff, Gina Zedlick and Barry Leslie, during my almost four years there. Barry is now runs the gas. Department of Administrative Services. Yeah, yeah, she's fantastic. And then there's a series of policies. We divided it up then between the two of them and every, everyone else. So the communications director and the general counsel, for example, appointed reported to me. Gina had a portfolio of executive appointments and federal affairs, and then Barry had a lot of the policy advisors. But we met every day as a as a senior management team with the governor to surface issues that needed to be talked about. And that's hmm. a lot of times these issues are so multidimensional. You can't if you're super confident about the decision you're making, you're probably overconfident. You really need <laughs> to make sure that you you've looked at it from a lot of different angles. Have you looked at it from the business angle, the environmental angle, the late worker angle. And that's why you need to have more people in an efficient way around the table with input. So the governor can make the best decision. That's so interesting. Okay. So, so aside from structure and like job description, I think that the years are like between 2017 and late 2020, right? What is happening in the state? Like what are the big categories of issues or big like newspaper headlines that you're trying to navigate while you're in that role? Yeah, and I think one of the, you know, Governor Brown assumed office under difficult circumstances and in, inherited a team. And it just was, I, I now f- more fully appreciate how hard that would have been because you you didn't have the year or two of running for office and really formulating your agenda. You just sort of all of a sudden are there. So by the time I got there, there was a little more clarity, I think, on the agenda. And it was the 2017 session. And the big item then was the transportation package. One of the big mm-hmm. items was passing an infrastructure transportation package. And that was really, our, I think, one of our biggest accomplishments that session was passing that. And it was bipartisan. And it was a combination of building, repairing a lot of roads and bridges and building, but also really moving the state, recognizing that we're starting to have a lot of electric vehicles and they don't pay gas tax. So how are you going to begin to finance things? And that's where it raised the registration fees for electric vehicles pretty substantially in acknowledgement that we actually need to figure out how we're going to finance this stuff going forward, in addition to lots of investments in bikes and pedestrian and safe streets and all that. So that was a, a question bit. you'll be glad to know that we still haven't solved in the legislature. <laughs> yeah. No, it's we only got part of the way there. It's it's a it's a hard problem for sure. Yeah. And but then I think after that, governor's up for re-election. And I think the other answer to your question about being a chief of staff is that job changes. Because if you're there right out of the gate, like what Andrea Cooper's doing now, it's a very different job than if you're two years later about to supporting the governor when she's running for re-election, or you're in the last couple of years when she maybe has a little more freedom to make decisions because she's not running for re-election. So they're very actually different jobs depending on the rhythm and the that time. So She's running for re-election in 2018, and that was, you know, what we thought was going to be a very competitive race. It ended up not being that competitive in the end, but... Was that Newt Bueller, that yeah. cycle? Yeah, okay. Yeah. You know, and you had Phil Knight spending lots of money, and you had the same similar dynamics. And But then after she won re-election, 2019 session was really a blockbuster, kind of a, a session I think will go down in history as, as one of the more significant in terms of policies. You know, right or... If you agree or disagree, there, I don't think you disagree that... The policies that passed that session were significant. Yes. That's the Student Success Act with the bargain of Student Success Act, some purchase reform, paid family and medical leave, you know, big stuff. And then, of course, how, we ended, ended with the walkout. 
how involved were you or the governor's office? Like, what is the governor's office involvement in those like blockbuster legislative items look like? Like, how does that work? The governor's office prepared, the governor prepares a recommended budget mm-hmm. that goes in, you know, generally before the session starts, it's different in a year like this where there's a new governor, but that is meant to sort of be a starting point from the governor's perspective of what they, their priorities. And then the legislature pretends to ignore it, but they do pay attention to it. <laughs> the, the governor proposes and the legislature, the legislature disposes yeah. is what I've been told about the recommended budget. I see Kevin, you Kevin written, but I mean, you know, like, you know, governor office thinks it's the most important document. The legislature thinks that they totally ignore it, but it, it's, it's a very relevant starting point because what's happened is the governor's staff and DAS have spent the previous year really understanding the budget and the forecasts. And by the time they submit their budget, they're so far ahead in terms of thinking about the challenges. And the legislature spends the first three or four months of the session catching up about, Mm -hmm. oh, actually, those are the prison forecasts. Oh, that's the healthcare forecast. Mm -hmm. So then you catch up and then the final negotiations happen after the final revenue forecast in May, where you're kind of on the same page and you're trying to make some final decisions. So we were very involved. It was a very, how do I put this? I think public employees are, I just have incredible appreciation for the range of services and jobs that public employees do. And they're constantly beat up. At the time, they were constantly beat up by the business community and and particularly over the issue of PERS. Mm-hmm. And so we basically spent, and I spent a lot of time trying to understand the issue, trying to parse it out and trying to come up with what is a path that's fair. It's very unfair to put all of the burden on existing public employees who didn't have anything to do with the debt that retired public employees or previous legislatures passed. So it's, you know, we came up with some modest reforms. I think people's I mean, I know people think they weren't enough and other people think that they were unfair. But as you know, they enabled the everything's compromise in the legislature. They enabled the passage of the Student Success Act, which I think was a groundbreaking legislation, can still be improved upon, but was significant and paid family leave, which we really, we really need. So the short version for our listeners, sorry, Ben, is that one of the, I suppose, good things that the PERS board does is a while ago, and I don't remember exactly what year because I don't have all of the deep history, but the short version is they smooth out all of the ups and downs in the market over a period of years through employer rate and things like that. But the unfunded actuarial liability takes a long time, the gap between how much you're projected to eventually have to pay and how much you have currently funded, it takes a long time to catch up. Treasurer Reed has basically spent his entire eight years in the treasury doing that right? Getting it as funded as it can. And so at the point we were at in 17 and 19, that had started to happen, but still wasn't happening. The economy was roaring, but the PERS unfunded liability was still pretty large and employer rates were still increasing to catch up with the problems that happened in the economy. There was a spurt in like 13 and 14 that was a little rough, right? And so you had the public employees who, like you said, it's the tier two and tier one employees who had really, really good benefits that are costing so much money 
on the back end now. Right. And we're trying to find ways, but that's a contract and you constitutionally cannot break that contract. That's right. So we are finding ways to project out and change things on the back end to stuff that hadn't been paid out yet. And so, and the business community was pointing at that and saying, look, this is the cost. This is driving up the cost of government. You shrink this cost, you shrink the cost of all public sectors because it hits schools, it hits, it hits local governments, it hits state governments, right? And that's what they were asking for, I think, in return for greater funding of schools, right? Yeah. And I think the thing that, that frustrated me as a, as a, again, as a business person in a government role at the time was these are business people that care a lot about their own employees, would do everything they could to keep and retain and train their own employees. And yet they were not being constructive and they were being dismissive about public employees. And that really frustrated me at the time. And the public employees piece of that, this was the piece that I forgot. They, their position was that they had repeatedly taken better benefits over the opportunity to get pay increases for a period yeah, of years. There were some freezes right. and stuff like that. And so they were saying, look, now you're trying to take away the thing that we were told is what we're getting out of our negotiations for contracts and stuff like that. So that that was the push and pull there. And if you look um, at the governor's budget, years. but see, this is a good example. If you look at the governor of why the governor's budget is relevant, if you look at the governor's budget for 2019, it was the biggest single wage increase, I think, mm -hmm. in history, because mm -hmm. we knew that that was actually true. We actually needed to increase the salary in order to be competitive, mm -hmm. while at the same time having this difficult discussion about the retirement side. Oh, that's interesting. So did that GR did the GRB with those numbers in it happen before the PERS bill was passed? Yeah. Yep. So you were you were anticipating this happening. Oh yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. So I like so I imagine the role of chief of staff during a moment like this is actually probably somewhat similar to like a super legislator in that I'm sure you've got folks who think this is a horrible idea calling you and meeting with you and saying, what are you doing? This is a disaster. And probably some pressure from the business community to say like, you need to be a little bit more aggressive here. Like, were you, were you personally fielding those kinds of messages? Yeah. I mean, these were all my friends really. I mean, on, on all both sides and people I, but at the end of the day, the governor, you know, you work at the pleasure of the governor and you're trying to implement what she wants to see happen. And, and, and you know, she was an experienced legislator. So she kind of knew the rhythm of how the governor interacts with the legislature. I mean, it's it's a danger when a legislator takes over as governor because you try to you you initially may act like a legislator and that's not the right thing to do. You mm -hmm. you have to let the legislature do their thing. But you also know there's key moments and key leverage points that you have to come in. So yeah, you sort of are this, you have to know what you're talking about in order to be useful, but you are the one that is sort of representing the governor in all these places where she can't be. Hmm. Reagan. So your final period of work, about a year, a little, actually a little less than a year, it's like eight months. You yeah. have the COVID front end of COVID through the end of the Trump administration, and then November, is when you end up leaving the governor's office. What were those final eight months like? Fun? Were they fun? I mean, I, I think I'll still be emotionally processing them for the rest of my life, honestly. Yeah. I mean, just the month of August alone, August, September, where you had COVID, mm. civil unrest in downtown Portland, and Labor Day wildfires was just, that was a really mm. insane period. Yeah. But, you know, I've thought about this quite a bit, and we'll probably still be thinking about it. It was really insane to be a democratic governor in a pandemic with donald trump as president <laughs> and oh i can only say in the early months and obviously i'm biased 
but I am so glad Kate Brown as an individual was governor during that period. And with the reason is she's just sort of uniquely a good listener. And this was a circumstance that no one had confronted. Mm-hmm. And you look at what other governors did during that period. And, you know, you all you're attracted to the take charge. Generally, Andrew Cuomo, generally Andrew Cuomo. Male governor and Andrew Cuomo is the perfect example. I mean, everyone's dying in his state, but you feel confident because he right. looks like the quintessential leader. That's right. Where Kate Brown sat back, really, you know, we assembled a medical advisory board. We really talked and listened to people. She, you know, unlike California and Washington, we, she actually didn't shut down a big chunk of the economy. Manufacturing, retail, and construction all stayed open because she listened. She's like, hey, actually, I hear the medical professionals saying, hey, here's the issues. And so then we're like, well, why would we just copy what California is doing when this doesn't make medical sense? So she got mm-hmm. criticism for not looking like an Andrew Cuomo type leader, but the decisions she made, I think, were reflective of that kind of thoughtfulness early in the early in the early years. And I think the numbers do back that up too. What can I say about the only, I guess the other thing I'd say is you really, in a period like that, you learn the limits of power. And this is similar to my experience in the Biden administration, you can be the most powerful person in the state. And yet you very clearly learn your limits in a period like this. You can decree whatever you want, but that doesn't mean everyone's going to follow you. And we saw, you know, other states were in those early days of COVID shutting things down. And you had generally rural and Republican county commissioners and folks rebelling. And we delayed that. We did not have that for a very long time because she was made a real conscious effort to reach out and talk to folks and try to understand what would be the right, the right, the same, what we do in Portland may be the something, we may need to do something different in Eastern Oregon than in Portland. So anyway, that's, I'm happy to answer more specific questions about it, but it was just a yeah. very crazy, crazy Without thing. saying names, sorry, Ben, without saying names, I know a lot of commissioners who were on the phone talking to Governor Brown very regularly advocating yeah. for their communities, trying to get them more open, trying to get the limits lifted, trying to do all this stuff. And I know they felt heard by her, right? It, they, she didn't always come up with the exact policy that they were hoping, but there were always those conversations happening, right? And I think those are, that's when the times when those relationships that were built, because some of those commissioners had been a while or been in other roles or worked with her before, had right. good relationships with her. That's when those relationships and how well they were built or not are going to matter a ton. Yeah, thank you for that. I think, I mean, when I say limits of power, I also mean, you know, the last thing Governor Brown wanted to do was close schools. In fact, two days before they closed, she said, we're, we're not closing schools. But then the next day, 20% of parents stopped sending their kids to school yeah, and teachers yeah. stopped showing up and you can't make them. And it just, and then school boards individually start closing schools. So it's just, you sort of really learn, like I said, the limits of your of your power. So that's a really good lesson. I'm curious, this is like the job interview question is like, what is your greatest mistake and what did you learn from it? Like, are there, I'm even thinking like the lens I've been using to judge even my own small role in this as a local school board member. In fact, a school district who did shut down really early is like something like this will happen again. It might be a pandemic. It might be some other type of emergency or disaster. It might be the big one that we're all, you know, hopefully preparing for. Like. I'm curious if there are like the sort of emergency response aspect of this, like either process, not necessarily like a decision point, although maybe like what did you learn from it that you think 
your advice would be to like future administrations about how to approach this sort of large scale suck all the oxygen out of the room all you're talking about is the thing like are there any like any thoughts that you have on that kind of prompt it's a good question i it's funny the one thing that jumps to mind is not in a direct answer to your question but it's to me something that and i'll just give this to you as something that i would recommend you focus on in the legislature the critical infrastructure hub you ever heard of that remind me yeah so this is the an enormous disaster waiting to happen all of the storage for petroleum in the state is on at this critical infrastructure hub almost all in portland on the Willamette river yes 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 on unsafe ground yep we know it it's been there for years and it's sort of if i think about one thing i really wish we'd made more progress on it's when because when there's an earthquake it's going to all that's going to go down the columbia river and so that's an, so i think there's things we know that are hard that we need to work on to, mm. as a prevention that's one so when i think back about the pandemic specifically i mean i think it would have been better if we had storage you know in surplus more yeah. masks more medical equipment i mean that would have been or I domestic think, supply chains that could supply us without being dependent on boats and foreign countries and yeah right i think that's really a main one. I think I think we generally responded. We did not have, I don't, I would say, and we still don't really clear. I mean, schools have local control. So if if really the structure for how you would support schools, keep them open, or provide testing or things in school environment when you have this distributed management, that has not been figured out. So I mm -hmm. I would I think we need to take a whole holistic look at okay, if this happens again. What's the best thing we can do for kids given yes. local control and, you know, lack of school nurses and all of that? Totally. So we want to wrap up with your time in the Biden administration. You spent about, I'm counting, a little over a year, maybe a little less than a year. A little over a year. I was on the transition team from November to okay. February and then was in the administration for almost a year and a half, I guess. So what was what was that experience like going to D.C.? Yeah, so I hadn't been in D.C. since I was a junior in high school. Professional page. <laughs> right. So uh, it was amazing. I'm really, I had an amazing boss, a woman named Evan Ryan. She was, her title was cabinet secretary. She's on, still is on the president's senior staff. And married I, to the secretary of state, right? Married to Anthony Blinken. Yes. Yeah. Just a pro. Like she, in her early 20s, she was Hillary Clinton's scheduler. And she sort of grew up in the White House. Wow. And I think what I learned I was in a pretty unique role as her chief of staff in the office of cabinet affairs. And you really learn this specialized knowledge that is, by the way, fairly useless now to me, <laughs> but the specialized knowledge of actually how the White House works and how the largest organization on the planet really works. And hmm. in cabinet affairs, you have a purview over all the cabinet agencies and the, many of the sub cabinet agencies like NASA or the National Science Foundation. And I talked to the chiefs of staff in those cabinet agencies almost every day about hmm. kind of what their challenges are, what do they need now from the White House, tell them what the White House wants them to do. So we did everything from running cabinet meetings to making sure they had tickets to the Easter egg roll on the White House lawn and everything in between. So in terms of like you talked about the, you know, starting as the chief of staff to the governor and coming home just like exhausted and 
how does the job compare in that in, t- in terms of like stress on the job and demand of hours? Is it about comparable or is it something a little south of that? So I'll, I'll tell you, this may not be the answer you're expecting. The most stressful job I've had was being the president of a small business hmm. <laughs> and making payroll. And and I'm it's not just a, it's true. The second though is in a different way and exhausting was governor's chief of staff. Mm-hmm. Working at the White House, I think maybe because I'm, you know, I'm 52 now. I think you're, you're as you get older in your career, you you understand how to what your own physical limits are, and you can manage to those. And mm-hmm. you know, I tried to work out three or four days a week at lunchtime to take a break. And you know, you just you prioritize that. Whereas when you're younger, you you kind of burn yourself out. Is what I guess I would say. It was very different. It was there are what I would call principles. So very senior people from the president, vice president, to members of Congress, to cabinet members are all the time everywhere. And mm-hmm. helping support them make the decisions they need is just a, they have, there's so many people around doing it that you're, you're, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's, you're not as accountable for various, for the kinds of things you are as the governor's chief of staff. You're more right. trying to facilitate a lot of different things from, to happen. Totally. Um, yeah. Backing up a little bit. Yeah. So you worked in DC as a you know basically an intern level position so how did how did you get on the radar of the biden transition team and then did you seek out this specific job as the chief of staff to the in the office of cabinet affairs or did you kind of get placed here like how does that all work i worked tell us what it was like to get the twitter dm from ron Klain about (laughs) the white house uh well it was well okay i could come back and talk a little bit about ron but um the (laughs) I, during COVID, I had organized, it was, like I said, it was crazy to be a chief of staff to a Democratic governor under Trump. And we were all on our own. We were all trying to make all these insane decisions, all these, all our bosses were. And so I actually had put up, put together a weekly call of my counterparts in Washington, California, Colorado, Nevada. And we would talk about like, hey, are you, what are you doing about schools? What are you doing about sporting events? What are you doing? And we would compare notes. And as the election approached, it's an interesting story, maybe for a future podcast. The chief of staff to Governor Newsom at the time, Ann O'Leary, was the head of the transition for Hillary Clinton. Okay. So she had put together the whole plan, God. didn't get to implement it. And we became friends. And Evan called her friend Ann and said, I need a liaison for governors on the transition. Do you got any suggestions? And Ann gave her my name and I said, hey, this sounds fun. I'll do that for a couple of months. And then I'll go back to Governor Brown's office. That was always my intention. And then Evan got a job as a senior staff person. She offered me the her chief of staff role, which is sort of a, what I would call a, a scene. Uh, you have a vantage point as a chief of staff in a White House office that is pretty significant. It's not at the senior staff level, but you you really do see what's going on and have some some ability to to help the president. And so I I said, oh, look, I'm never going to get another opportunity like this. I got to give it a shot. And my wife was supportive. And so there we I go. was going to say that that was actually one of the other questions I had written. So your wife has a very important job in Oregon at the same time. She's the elected chair of the Multnomah County Commission, um, navigating some of the same challenges. You're in D.C. How old how old were your kids at this time? Like, did yeah, you- we had uh, a senior in high school and a sophomore in high school and then a kid in college. So I think if it had happened five or 
10 years earlier, I would not have felt as comfortable doing it. But, you know, being there, when you're in DC, there's a lot of people, diplomats, folks in the military that do this. This is their job. They're, mm -hmm. they're de on deployments all the time. So I sort of felt like, look, if they can do this and serve their country and the family is supportive, it's a different family dynamic. But I said, look, I just, I want to give it a shot. And president thinks I can do some, do some good. I'll, I'm, I'm going to try and do my best. Hmm. That's pretty cool. So how did you get to your current role at PG? And then just like, what's your basic job description and, and what are you working on? Yeah, thank you. Well, so I'll just, yeah, wrap this up by saying I was in DC for, I moved to DC. I was coming back and forth, but I lived there for a year. Hmm. Pretty, pretty phenomenal year and a half in the Biden administration in terms of the infrastructure, bipartisan infrastructure law, Afghanistan, the Dobbs decision, a lot of successful legislation in Congress, including ultimately the Inflation Reduction Act. And my I felt in talking to my wife, it was just really hard on the family. So I yeah. made the decision I need to come home. And and it was it was a, a grueling job also. So I knew I wanted to come back to the private sector and was you know, fortunately landed at a, at a place in a, in an industry. Uh, so I'm the vice president of public affairs at, at PGE. And I think it's an industry that is just going through dramatic and exciting change right now, where we have to deliver reliable and affordable power at the same time, we're remaking our whole generation system and decarbonizing. And it's just a huge challenge. One thing I didn't mention is hmm. the other volunteer effort I did for many years was really with the environmental community. And I, I was actually the chief petitioner on a ballot measure that would ban coal in the state back in the mid 2000s. No kidding. That turned into the coal to clean legislation that utilities negotiated with with us, Renew Oregon. And so I now feel like, okay, I got to put up or shut up in terms of helping implement this legislation that some people think is not possible to implement and others think, well, we got to find a way. So I'm looking forward to the challenge. It's a big challenge. Um, it's an important company to Oregon. And Look forward to working with you both on that. Uh, on that. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Nick, thank you for where we pushed right to the limit of what we said we would, uh, how long this would go. But thank you for the time. This was super fun for both of us and hopefully interesting for listeners as well. And if they want to learn more about what you're up to, what's the best way for them to learn more? What am I supposed to say? Read my book that I have. No, <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you have a so SoundCloud or a book or a campaign, campaign website, Nick Foster for I've, Mayor, yeah, I right. don't know. I quit Facebook. I don't tweet and I <laughs> don't have a book or a campaign. So maybe you'll just have to have me back in a year or two and we'll, we'll do some commentary. I, don't, I can, I can promise. Time. I can promise we will send the invite. And if you're still up <laughs> for it, we'll, we'll take it. And by the way, Reagan, did you hear that? He doesn't have a Twitter account. That's pretty good advice. I think. That's interesting. Yeah. Neither <laughs> you or I apparently follow that advice, but maybe <laughs> we should. I should. have the account. I just, I just lurk and follow you, Reagan. That's all. <laughs> I don't tweet yes. myself. I you saw my most... picture then of how many days until Ben's party stops uh, stops destroying the state of Oregon then? Yeah. 149 days until Sunny die. Let's go. Until, parentheses, Oregonians are safe. I actually, I did show people that picture because it's kind of funny, even though it's not true. Not true. No, uh, never. You guys would never do anything bad ever. Nope. <laughs> all right, Nick, thank you again for coming on. And everyone, thank you all for listening. And we'll see you back here next week. Thanks to you both.